The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Tuesday, March 30th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, Donald Trump welcomed the My Pillow Guy to a press conference. He thanked God for Donald Trump. He said a prayer and pledged to throw in a free pillowcase if he called the number below. Today, Donald Trump had two choices. He could have gone with Matthew Lesko and the Riddler-esque dollar sign suit to scream at us how phase four was giving us free government money. Or he could have decided to... Stop! To quote another leading intellect of the late night infomercial salon. And so he went the other route. He stopped the insanity. Amidst fanfare on CNN and MSNBC about not taking the briefings live or vowing, as Chuck Todd did, to dump out of the briefing if they became too deleterious to the national interest, Trump stepped back. He actually didn't lie. I don't think he maybe even lied at all. I mean, he exaggerated. Sure, he fell back on some pat phrases about how the spike in Louisiana cases came out of nowhere. He expressed his usual unearned confidence, but he mostly let his experts bring on charts and deliver info and talk straight to the American people. And the message was a serious one that we should expect 100,000 or maybe upwards of 200,000 deaths. And then came the proof, the proof that he was serious. And this might just be the highlight of the Trump presidency. Just to be clear, what is the projected death toll? Should people be reasonably good at following these mitigation measures? Well, if they're reasonably good, I guess we could say... No, no, don't do it, no! I'd like to have uh, maybe Dr. Fauci or Deb come up and say, I mean, I have numbers, but I'd rather have them say the numbers if you don't mind. It's big. Don't mind? We love it! Yes! Thank you, God. He let the experts answer. At one point, at a few points, in fact, Jim Acosta of CNN asked some annoying questions, and Trump, you ready? Let him be annoying. Unbelievable. I know. I know how it's going to go. Tomorrow, Ron Pompeil or Body by Jake or uh, George Bluth and the Cornballer will get center stage at a briefing. But for now, we were told, almost as if we were adults, that we should be prepared for 100,000 or more deaths. Maybe we can avoid it, but yes, be prepared. On the show today, the Cuomo brother dynamic, how to tap into some of that communicative power of their message, even if we don't have 50 years of brotherhood to draw from. But first, introverts are having a moment, a moment of, see, this is what it's like for us. But what of the extroverts? Wither the extroverts? No one spares a thought for the extroverts. Except I do, we do, we here at The Gist do. It's a tough time for those outgoing amongst us. The Gist is here for the extroverts, and the extroverts are here on The Gist. I have assembled a panel of extroverts from far-flung industries, including media, media, and media, well, specifically magazine, books, and the number one Jewish-themed podcast in America, Unorthodox. Oh, I can't hold these extroverts back. Here they are, extroverts assembled, up next. These are tough times for all of us, all of us quarantined, all of us having to deal with ourselves, and of course, 
for the anxious, for people dealing with anxiety, it's very tough. But I'm not talking about them. If you want to hear about the anxious, there are some excellent podcasts out there. Deep Background with Noah Feldman interviewed Laurie Santos, who is the uh, professor of psychology at Yale. The Three Uncanny Four podcast, Viral, did an episode on panic. There's a lot going on with the anxiety community. I am here to speak to another community, an underserved community in times like these, the extroverts. This is a very tough time for extroverts who have a need, a need for other people. On Twitter, the writer Amanda Mull tweeted out, she's gone too long without a hug. And my heart went out to her. Not only my heart, but my invitation to be on the show. We'll also be joined in a second or two by a couple other extroverts, Stephen Witt and Mark Oppenheimer. But first, Amanda Mull. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she writes the Material World column about consumerism, health, culture, those sort of things. Thanks for joining me, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I can't offer you a hug, but I can offer you a platform. What's it been like? Define your extroversion and what yearnings have you had during this time alone? Well, I am a a person who really likes to leave my house. I know it's not trendy to be a person who likes to go out into the world and socialize (laughs) at this point, but even my little daily habits are are sort of in, in normal times built around that. Even if I have coffee in my house, I will go out to get coffee because I live in a neighborhood surrounded by a lot of my friends, so I might run into somebody. I'm friendly with all the girls who work at my local coffee shop. So I like to chat with them. Like I, and and like, that is just like the first part of my day that normally follows those sort of extroverted lines. This has been like a, a, like a real psychological disruption for me. Uh, not just a disruption in my like daily movements and stuff like that. So, uh, plus, like I said, on Twitter, I'm a hugger. I, uh, like to hug my friends and, you know, physical touch is nice. (laughs) Um, so, so this has been like a really big disruption for me personally. And you live alone. It's just you and your chihuahua. Is that right? Yes. Me and my chihuahua who does not like hugs that much. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it is nice at least to have, uh, another living thing in here, uh, interacting with me that fulfills part of it, but she doesn't like hugs. Is it having a, an effect on your creativity, the ideas that you have, Beyond your mental health, just your intellect, I guess. Uh, For extroverts, that's a large way that we imbibe information through these encounters, and now that valve is shut off. Yeah, it's... It would probably be a little bit worse if I was trying to do my regular coverage for The Atlantic and, and trying to, to do my regular creative projects. Most of my day job has shifted to coronavirus coverage, so and there there is no shortage of stories to be told about that. So for the meantime, that sort of fills in, or my other creativity might be lagging a little bit. But definitely just in sort of like having random ideas and, and, and noticing things about the world uh, as it is, which is such a big part of being a writer, you have to find new ways to do that. I was always a big Twitter user, but I found myself on it even more because that is sort of a source of sort of unexpected interactions in a way that the physical world can't be right now. Yeah. Well, this uh, prompts me to bring in Stephen Witt, who's an author and a long-form journalist and a producer his book that he's best known for, and I take that right from his his bio on his website, I am best known for the book, How Music Got Free. Hey, Stephen, how are you? Good. How are you, man? 
I'm good. So we were playing poker online via Zoom the other day, and yeah. you said something that I, wa- I wanted to pursue, which is, ah, oh, I hate not going out. It's where I get all my ideas from. Yeah, it's true. Uh, uh, my entire career essentially is derived from going to parties and drinking with editors and, and other journalists. I met my fiance at a bar. You know, we have a kid together now. So pretty much every aspect of my life that's good or positive uh, came from either being at a bar at two in the morning or at a cocktail party. And so this is just torture for me. The term extrovert kind of goes back to, I think, some kind of Jungian thing. But most people will know it through the Myers-Briggs personality test. And when I take that online, I get a, a 99% extroversion score. So being being locked in the house with a three-year-old is just not <laughs> not my cup of tea. So Amanda was just saying that, you know, all of her work is pretty much now about Corona. It makes sense. She's a health reporter. But you do, you know, you'll do a profile of a rapper. You'll write about, you have, you're, you have very broad eclectic tastes. Is it the case that you're worried about not getting enough ideas? Or is it more of the case that there's just not a market for anything but Corona these days? No, my, my mind is just a wasteland of old tires and broken bottles right now. Like I, I cannot come up with anything. You know, the way I work is I will have a few kind of germs, a couple seeds of ideas in my mind. And I develop those by getting drunk and haranguing people about them. Uh, you know, and I don't know what I'm going to say next as I talk about them. And four times out of five, it turns out to be nothing. But every once in a while, in the course of a conversation, I'll be like, oh, I I just had a really good idea. So I'm thinking as I'm talking. And so when I'm trapped in an office as I am now by myself, I'm not really thinking. I'm, I'm sort of just stuck on a hamster wheel, regurgitating the same two or three ideas again and again without developing them through that crucial process of cornering some unfortunate person at a bar. All right, now, to talk about the the next generation of extroverts, let's bring in Mark Oppenheimer, who is the author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, America's Religion in the Age of Counterculture, and the newish Jewish Encyclopedia, and he does a lot of stuff with uh, Tablet and their podcast. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hello. I, I am fine. And I'm also curious where Stephen finds all of these parties now that he's a grown man with a three-year-old. Like, nobody's, nobody's <laughs> invited. Like, I love Freeform, Dazed and Confused, you know, Meet Me at the Moon Tower, Keg Bust. But, like, wh- where do you find – those are not going on in my middle-aged cohort in New Haven uh, on a Tuesday night. Yeah, you got you to gotta move to Los Angeles and kind of do uh, microdose edibles with the other Montessori dads. If I, I come to Los Angeles, will you give me microdose edibles? <laughs> You can buy them at the store. They're not hard to find. Okay. I, I've been living in the wrong state, clearly. Anyway, that wasn't what you brought me. You didn't bring me on to, to sort of uh, to fanboy Stephen's uh, partying life, Mike. Uh, my Actually, my secret ambition was just to unite extroverts. That's well, what right. all that I'm trying to do. Also, Amanda, I think, you, Amanda, you need cuddlier dogs. You need bigger dogs is the thing because they will, you need like pillow-sized dogs. Right? Well, the problem with, the problem with that is I live in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Uh, and I have New, you know, New York City sized right. apartment. So she is, she's perfect. My Chihuahua is perfect for the scale of my apartment, but not perfect for making me feel like there's another uh, large living right. being <laughs> near me. <laughs> I'll send you a dog and uh, and three fifths of my children, and you will feel very. Um, you'll feel. 
Amazon or a dog. <laughs> you have five children, Mark? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and um, ultimately, you know, the goal, I mean, speaking of the freelance life is, um, you know, I, four, you can't monetize four children. Every, like, like Michael Shabon has four kids. Don Updike had four kids. When you're at five, you can sell stories around it. You can get invited on, on podcasts to talk about five. You, then you're in, yeah. uh, you're in Gaffigan <laughs> territory. Yeah, it becomes a, it becomes a career move. So, but Mark, I did want to talk about, so of your kids, you wrote about your daughter who's, I guess when she, when you wrote about her, she was three and she's a big extrovert. How old is she now? Right. So Anna's six and, um, and she, yeah, she makes me look like a sort of shy, retiring, you know, MFA poetry type, um, uh, which I'm, I'm not, uh, she's crazy extroverted. Uh, and, um, she, hugs almost everyone she sees. She's very touchy and also just, you know, loves talking to people and doesn't really, it's, it's beautiful to see how, how low her social barriers are. But this has been tough. We were outside walking um, the dogs the other day and she saw her, her, one of her old preschool teachers, she's now in first grade, but her, one of her old preschool teachers lives on our street and she always runs and hugs Anne. And as she was running toward Anne to hug her and violating the six feet social distance, you know, Anne sort of dodged out of the way and I had to scream, no, and, you know, sort of do a slow-mo dive in front of her. And it was very, she started sobbing. I mean, she couldn't understand why, why does no one want my hugs anymore? So that, that is kind of sad. It's, it's, uh, did we lose Mike? We lost Mike? our host. Okay. Yeah, it looks like we lost Mike. All right, well, I'm the host now. Um, all right, Wit, you're all in. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys going to do when quarantine <laughs> is lifted? So I, I had this thought, wouldn't it be a funny piece for someone to like, a sort of funny, maybe it's not, maybe this is why I don't write for The Onion, but, you know, the governors of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut get together and promise that if we observe quarantine now, that when it's lifted, all drugs will be free and monogamy will be suspended for a month. Like it was oh, yeah. Pure oh, there bacchanal. we go. <laughs> just, just pure, like, ice storm bacchanal. For, we, we, we get our reward when it's all over. Yeah, it's like the purge, but for party animals. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Mike's back. Great. Oh, you don't need me. This is the best. This was my I- ideal. Yeah, I, uh, Mike, I commandeered your podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> Amanda, how about you? Uh, the first thing that I want to do when quarantine is lifted is I, I have a favorite bar in Carroll Gardens called Wing Bar. Uh, that is what it sounds like. It is it is sort of a sort of a divey place that makes incredible wings and sells ten dollar pitchers of Coors Light, which is so hard to find in Brooklyn. And all I want to do is go sit at Wing Bar and over the course of like three or four hours drink like two pitchers of Coors Light. Uh, and eat too many. God, wings. that sounds just sounds amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just want to be. I just want to be in a public place I like without really thinking about it for an extended period of time. <laughs> I am completely with you guys. I mean, Amanda, I too like give me a sort of long grocery line, and it's just like a chance for conversation. And and yes, I get all my best ideas browsing. I you know window shopping, browsing and you know, secondhand bookstores. We just got, we just like a year ago, got a brand new sort of used vinyl record shop here in uncool New Haven. And I just would go in there and talk to the owner and just like kill time. And then I'd go home, feel so ready to write. And I just, I just need more, more different physical spaces to get in, get out in. Um, I miss that terribly. I'm going to host a, a massive house party just so every, everyone on the pod is invited if you can make it. Chihuahuas, edibles. <laughs> 
So I do have a couple I do have a couple questions. One is the pop definition of introvert versus extrovert is an introvert is someone who goes to a party or social gathering and it draws energy from them. And an extrovert is someone who gains energy from such a situation. It's one of those pop definitions that I just think works very well. Do you guys uh, buy into that definition? Absolutely. You know, I haven't been exercising. I've had very little energy. I just feel so sluggish and lethargic during this period. I mean, who is there to impress? You know, why would I do anything? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that that is like a, a big reason that like the every the everyday going out to get coffee routine is important for me because like you get that like hit of social interaction and then I feel like ready to do things and ready to uh, be a person who communicates out into the world. The coffee itself is sort of incidental. I'm not that big of a caffeine person, but it's what I have to buy in order to have the social interaction <laughs> that wakes me up. Amanda, I'm a thousand percent with you there. I don't really like coffee, but I feel like I'm paying a $5 sort of excise tax on the the social interaction that I need as part of my ritual. Like, you know, if I'm going to write at 10 o'clock, at 9 o'clock, I have to go spend $5 somewhere, talk to the baristas, talk to the other people, bump into people. Um, but yes, that definitely, definitely sustains me, gives me interaction. Um, I have this thing, I live on a, a nice walkable street with sort of you know, houses where people are often on their porches and about four or five, if I need, if I need to do an hour more work, I, I kill half an hour first by just walking up and down the street and finding someone to talk to. And it can be anybody. I just go outside, find someone to talk to, have an interaction, go home, then I'm ready to type again. So look, a part, Mark, part of your, I guess, running through the essay you wrote in the Washington Post about your daughter was an acknowledgement, almost a comic acknowledgement that this is not a condition. This is not uh, disease, you know, this is just, this is just a character trait, but let's think about the extroverts too. And I wanted to do that in our time. I don't know. Should people feel sad for us or just consider us, or should they know that when this is over, we'll be enjoying it so much more than even everyone else? You know, I guess my take would be, um, yeah, I mean, Andrew Sullivan and I mean, what Amanda just said, echo it, you know, how hard it is to get hugs if you live alone. Andrew Sullivan wrote in one of his essays, it's been two weeks since I've had a hug and it kind of just brought tears to my eyes. Um, I think, uh, and that's true for all human beings that we need physical contact, but sure. I mean, um, you know, my wife who really likes um, her children and very few other people, that's that's a little unfair, she, but she she makes that joke. She says, this is an introvert's dream. <laughs> that's a little dream. unfair. She doesn't like all her children. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she says this is an introvert's dream. She's like, wait, I get to stay home with just my dogs and my kids and, like, cook and read novels and do some work remotely. But, yeah, sure, I'd like, I'd like a, a little compassion. And I will extend it to the introverts when they are forced to go to uh, the office party. Stephen Witt, Amanda Mull, Mark Oppenheimer, three extroverts who are just raring to bust out. I'm, I'm glad to have given you the forum. Thank you, guys. Party at Stephen's place when this is over. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, I'm, hol I'm holding you to that. <laughs> Bring the chihuahuas. It's going to be lit. You're going to love it. And now the spiel. As you've no doubt heard, Chris Cuomo of CNN has been diagnosed with the coronavirus. Before I even heard the news, which is, of course, very upsetting, especially for someone I personally know a little bit and quite like a great deal, I was thinking about a question. What are the elements of the Cuomo brother interplay that are so effective beyond just being interesting, captivating television? They actually are informative and they speak to our moment. Obviously, 
Andrew and Chris Cuomo have almost 50 years of brotherhood between them. And also independently, they're both well-known in their own realms. And they've made a point not to do their jobs together, meaning Chris doesn't usually interview Andrew for reasons of journalistic distance. So that means when we see them interacting, it's a rarity. So there's all that. That's true. It's not like any other public officials can draw on those specific elements. But if you haven't seen the brother-on-brother kidding and insulting, but also reminiscing and elevating of each other, here's a snippet. This is from last night's interview on Cuomo Primetime before Chris knew he was COVID-19 positive. So they were talking about the sauce, the sauce that their mom, Matilda, apparently taught only Chris, but not Andrew, how to prepare. Not at all a sore point or a shiv to the ribs in the relationship. Listen. And she called me and said, is Andrew there? I said, no, mom, I'm all alone here out on the island with my family. And she said, where is he? And I said, he's up in Albany in the house with the big gates and the attack dog. And she said, oh, that's too bad. And I said, it's okay, mom. I love him and I'll make sauce for him too. And she started to cry. And then I said, goodbye. Yeah. That's no, what happened. You've always been good at manipulation. You've always been good at manipulation. You've always been the meatball of the family. And look, some of us have to work, right? I don't have the luxury of working one hour a day. God bless you. Well, I'm happy first for of all, you. It's uh, a full-time job. Most of us job. work more than one hour a day. That's all I'm you saying. You certainly have been working a lot. And I'll tell you what, be careful. Uh, not just because you look like you've been burning a lot of hours, but you show up in a lot of places. And I know it gives comfort to people. But if you get sick, God forbid, God forbid, there's only one of you right now. And if you get sick, it's a problem. So I know you like to run around with your ill-fitting jacket, but just remember that. You got to stay healthy. I need your big brother because I love you and you're the center of the family, but you're the center of the state right now also. It's all there, right? The family history, the unmistakable bond. But listen to how the interaction bypassed maudlin sentiment, which is usually a pretty comfortable realm for TV news. Doesn't even touch on it. It jumps right to love. So it's a lot of cutting humor, boom, right to the expression of love. And through it, we get to know both players via their interactions. Maybe if you grew up in that sort of house or perhaps amongst the Italians, you can relate. You can actually place yourself inside the dynamic and therefore Governor Cuomo's message and Chris's questions become all the more powerful. Maybe it's not that different from seeing any public figure who usually comes across one way, you know, in his or her official capacity, but then you see that person behave as an actual person, but you really believe it. You know that it wasn't born of, oh, my consultants say I need to be humanized. It's just born of those people or that person actually being a human being. The brothers come across as humans. And today, one of those humans announced his frailty, and the other was there to pick him up. But listen to how Andrew Cuomo did it, balancing the personal with the public good. My brother Chris uh, is positive for coronavirus, found out this morning. The, uh, now, uh, he is going to be fine. He's uh, young, in good shape, uh, strong, not as strong as he thinks, but uh, he will be fine. But there's a lesson in this. He's an essential worker, member of the press, so uh, he's been out there. If you go out there, the chance that you get infected is very high. Uh, I spoke to him this morning, 
and uh, he's going to be quarantined uh, in his basement at home. He's just worried about his daughter and his kids, that he hopes he didn't get them infected. Uh, you don't really know Chris. You know, you see Chris, uh, he has a show on night, uh, 9 o'clock on CNN. But you just see one dimension, right? You see a person in his job, and in his job he's combative and he's argumentative and he's pushing people. But that's his job. That's really not who he is. He's a really sweet, beautiful guy. Uh, and uh, he's my best friend. My father was always working, so it was always just me and Chris. And uh, My father was always working. Oh, yeah? Who's your father? What, do you own a shoe store? Was he an accountant? Oh, it was Governor Mario Cuomo. And it allows the listener to experience a little bit of pleasure upon the realization of that. It's even a little thrilling to hear them talk about this... Uh, if not mythical or heroic or semi-fictional figure, you know, bridges are named after the guy, to hear him talking about Mario Cuomo as if he's just, you know, a working dad. Again, humanizing figureheads. Then Governor Cuomo engaged in some reverie about Chris, but lest it become simply that, which could have been forgiven given the circumstances, Cuomo pulled back. He used the personal to make a point that many people will certainly relate to and to try to explain and convince us all of a necessary policy. But a sweet guy, and now he's quarantined in the basement, but it's funny as heck. He says to me, uh, even the dogs won't come downstairs, he says. <laughs> so, uh, but he is concerned about his wife and his kids. But the reason I raise it is he's smart. He social distancing, yes. But you wind up exposing yourself. People wind up exposing you, and then they find out they're positive a couple of days later. And I had a situation with Christopher two weeks ago that I even mentioned my mother was at his house. And I said, that is a mistake. Now, my mother is in a different situation. She's, uh, she's older. Uh, and she's healthy, but I said, you can't have mom at the house. And he said, no, 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 mom is lonely. She wants to be at the house. I feel bad. She's cooped up in the apartment. I said, yeah, I feel bad. She's cooped up in the apartment too. But you bring her to your house, you expose her to a lot of things. You have the kids there. You have your wife there. You're coming and going. Your wife is coming and going. And uh, you could expose mom to the virus. And love is uh, sometimes uh, a little, uh, needs to be a little smarter than uh, just reactive. And we had a whole discussion. And truth, now he's informed, I'm informed. Uh, was that dangerous? Was that not dangerous? So I went back to Dr. Zucker and I said, look, we have to tell people, what are the rules? How does this work? That's when I came up with Matilda's Law. That pivot, it was not forced. He generalized from the specific, and he took sentiment, and he made it relevant. And he did it at a time exactly when most people were apt to be paying the most attention. It was not forced. It wasn't tagged on. He wasn't using a moment for his political advantage. I mean, he was, but it didn't seem contrived or cynical. He explained humanely why we need to do the things we absolutely need to do. 
And all of that is one reason why Governor Cuomo has been handling the crisis well. And, you know, you're probably thinking about the figure I'm thinking of or have been during this spiel. And this figure came to mind and the figure is Donald Trump, because you're always thinking about Donald Trump and leaders communicating. And it's hard not to think of these things through the lens of Trump, to compare any figure to Trump, to think that Cuomo's appeal and power is mostly or in large part in contrast to Trump. That is a phenomenon that we're all dealing with. And you do hear Cuomo talking about family. And maybe you realize Trump has never even hinted at a human concern for the 14-year-old son he has at home. For his wife, who must be, as a fellow human being, must be worried. For his 10 grandchildren, never a word about actually wanting to touch a grandchild or a grandchild wanting to touch their grandpa. With all deference to the privacy of members of the first family, this is clearly a deficiency. No president has ever expressed less humanity and human connection, especially at a time when expressions of connection are necessary stand-ins for the lack of literal connection. But this isn't about Trump. It's really not. Cuomo isn't good because Trump is bad. Also, it's not the case that Cuomo has been perfect or can do no wrong or that he never says anything that is in any way comparable to Trump's ill statements. I, for the record, very much approve of Governor Cuomo's response. But if his words were picked over like the president's, certainly some fault could be found. In fact, I found an instance. This was him on March 8th. There's a level of fear here that is not connected to the facts. There's more fear, more anxiety than the facts would justify. Okay? Uh, that's why I want to make sure everyone understands what we're dealing with. You look at the facts here. This is not the Ebola virus. This is not the SARS virus. Okay, understandable, but if that were Trump, that'd be a go-to on the list of unfortunate utterances. But we do, and we should give Cuomo less guff because he is coming across as a human in these times of humanity under stress. He is sharing his vulnerability. And that is a really attractive quality in times of uncertainty. The aspect of the Cuomo brothers dynamic that I think other leaders could emulate is to think about their vulnerability. That is a key component for a leader to have because it invites the public in and therefore opens them up to being led. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She has a kind of heavy friend, a little heavy, but this friend makes the situation all the more real to her. Okay, it's Santa Claus. It's always Santa Claus, but he's never failed her yet. Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist. He and his sister have an ongoing riff about who's better at making their mom's sauce, but they're from Georgia, so I assume the sauce means moonshine. The Gist. The American people can rest assured we are going to thigh master ourselves out of this challenge. But remember to clean your hands and wipe all tabletops and not just clean, oxy clean. Oompa dapperu and thanks for listening. <laughs>